to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, No man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks, whom all of us know simply as Prof. Ultimately, I took every course he offered during my four years at DTS. Our relationship grew only closer and deeper as more than 50 years passed. Since I was his student, I have not prepared a message from God's Word without remembering and applying the techniques Prof taught me. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on personal evangelism. Wonderful to see you so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Looking at you a little more carefully, I think I should change it to bleary-eyed and bushed. <laughs> in the sleepy little community in West Texas, where not much happened, they were planning for the event of the year. It was the high school play. Unfortunately, they had miscast the young man who was to play the precipitating role. At the critical point in the play, he was to drop to his knees before this young thing and propose. The window was to go up, the gun was to be fired, and he was to leap to his feet and shout, Good heavens, I'm shot. And that's about the way he said it. It was an inviolate law that once you cast the parts, you didn't change them. They tried to drill the boy and coach him, but he had no histrionic ability, whatever. So they were stuck. Finally, the night of the play came, and as the high school coach was going out the door, he noticed his son's air rifle, and he got an idea. Now, you let me finish the story. <laughs> At the appropriate time, the young man goes down on his knee. When it goes up, the jilted suitor fires the gun, and with split-second accuracy, this high school coach just nips the trousers of this boy, and he leaps to his feet and steals the show as he shouts, Good heavens, I am shot! <laughs> now, I suspect about this time during the year, it's possible that you might be fed up with the setup. <laughs> and the glory of the grind has disappeared. And I'm sure that you are weary of being preached at. So this morning, I shall not do that. I would like to share with you some of the products of my own study in the New Testament. Peter Marshall, in his characteristically trenchant manner, describes 20th century Christians in these words. They are, he said, like deep-sea divers, encased in suits designed for many fathoms deep, marching bravely forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. The challenge, the cost, the conflict, those identifying hallmarks of first century Christianity are often conspicuous by their absence. 
today. When you read the pages of the New Testament and relate what you read to what you see today in the church, you are forced to conclude that the relationship is one of contrast, not comparison. And this has forced two questions in my mind, and I have been spending the last six years trying to answer them. The first question is, what is a New Testament church? I've never found a church that doesn't claim to be. Amazing what disparity there is in those churches that are New Testament churches. Seems to me it's about time we begin to return to the New Testament to find find out what are the distinguishing characteristics of a New Testament church. That's a good assignment for you that will occupy your study the rest of your life. The second question that it forced is, what is the life of Christ? If Christianity is Christ, if the Christian life is the life of Christ reproduced by the Holy Spirit in me, then what is the life of Christ? I believe every believer ought to drench his mind and heart with a study of the gospel. May I remind you that the Gospels do not present alone what Jesus Christ did when he was here. They present what Jesus Christ is doing now that he is here. And if the life of Christ is to be reproduced in me, then it seems to me that I must Study with intensity and with the direction of the Spirit of God precisely what that life involves. I'd like to share with you just a few principles that I have discovered and made my own. These principles are designed to provoke, not paralyze your thinking. I assure you when we get through, they will leave many loose ends. I hope they leave some live ones. And what will be accomplished this morning will be determined by what you do as a result of what you hear, not by what you hear. In the first place, I am impressed as I study the Gospels with the sensitivity of Christ in contrast to the callousness of my own heart. Will you turn with me, please, to the Gospel by Mark? I want to take each of the illustrations for the principles from this gospel, though they could be multiplied. Mark chapter 5. This is a part of the miracle segment of Mark. This is Mark's coronation hymn. And he cites four miracles which are calculated to produce belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. En route to the restoration of Jairus' daughter, Jesus Christ, in verse 35, meets a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. Now, this lady had the many, many, all, nothing, worse disease. You ever have that? It's very serious. No hospitalization policy covers it. She suffered many things from many physicians. She spent all that she had. She grew nothing better, but rather worse. 
This is Mark's way of telling you she had it. This is a hopeless case. And in her heart she was determined. Verse 25, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And when she touched him, the Lord turned, verse 30, and said, Who touched my clothes? And the disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? You know, there's a lot of humor in the Bible, and I think this is a case in point. Get a life-size picture of this teeming crowd pressing down, each one trying to get a look, trying to hear what he's saying, trying to see him perform another miracle. Just a mob pressing in on him, constantly need to push the people back so they can make progress. And all of a sudden, the Lord turns to the disciples and says, who touched me? Let's suppose we were in downtown Dallas. Now, if you've never been there, you may not appreciate the problem. We have a very congested downtown section. My wife and I went shopping during the Christmas vacation, and it's a very interesting phenomenon. You just get out on the sidewalk, and you don't have to move. They'll carry you. Your only problem is to get off at the right store. Now, let's suppose you're with me, and we're down in this mass, and they're just pushing us on down this street, and all of a sudden I turn to you and I say, friend, who touched me? See you turn and say, friend, who touched you? <laughs> How in the world do we know who touched you? Now get it. Jesus Christ could distinguish between the touch of faith and the indiscriminate press of a mob. Can you? You know, the greatest blight upon your ministry will be the blight of a barren professionalism. I'm a navigator. <clears throat> I'm a seminary professor. I'm a Christian worker. And somehow in the process of living... Even in the process of Christian service, gang, we lose the growing edges of a sensitive life, of a heart that beats for people. What do people do to you? They bother you? You ever go to a football stadium and see it packed with 60, 70,000 spectators in the stand? What's this do to you? My scriptures say that when Jesus Christ saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep. Now notice, having no what? Shepherds. That's the scarcest thing in all of the world. We've got specialists in every field in the church today except shepherds. We've got plenty of preachers. We've got an overdose of teachers. We've got people who are professionally competent in everything. But you go a long way, my friend, to find a heart that is broken for people. A crucified heart. The heart of Jesus Christ. 
willing to take time to meet an individual need. I think you have a choice illustration of this in Acts chapter 8 with Philip, the Billy Graham of his day. All the city of Samaria came out to hear him. He was just a layman at this stage. He later became known as Philip the Evangelist. But my friend, he was not such a big-time operator that when the Lord said, Go to a desert place, that he was not eager to run. What do you mean, leave the big city-wide campaign, friend, to talk to one individual? Who incidentally may have opened the continent of Africa to the gospel. And he gets on the chariot, turns to the man, he says, you understand what you're reading? This used to really get me. And I had a picture of sitting down on a plane next to a boy reading a magazine, turn and say, say, friend, you understand what you're reading? And I can see him turning and giving me a piece of his mind, which he might not afford to lose. There must have been something about the graciousness, the heart winsomeness of this individual. Then he said to the man, do you understand what what you're reading immediately responds? How can I accept someone guide me? Friend, he had just been to the temple. He had just heard the expositions. But he needed someone to sit down and to guide him. My friend, your greatest asset can become your greatest liability. As an outsider, to me, one of the greatest contributions the NAVs have made in areas where I have been has been a man-to-man ministry. But it's easy to get fogged because the flesh flourishes on a large crowd. Well, we only had 17 show up tonight for the meeting. Might be, my friend, the greatest meeting you've had. In fact, you might wish you had only five to really get next to some people. The second thing that impresses me as I've been studying the life of Christ is the serenity of Christ in contrast to the feverishness of my own life. The serenity of Christ in contrast to the feverishness of my own life. You look back to Mark chapter 1. You know, young people, there are only 52 recorded days in the life of our Lord in the Gospels. And in Mark chapter 1, you have the busiest recorded day in the life of our Lord. It was a day with, that was crowded with a performance of miracle, with teaching with ministering to others. And no one except a person who has sustained a public ministry understands the drain of people on an individual. Friend, if you minister to people, it will take something out of you. It's a lot harder than physical work. Remember, our Lord was human. He grew weary. But in verse 35, I read a verse that stabs me awake. It says, and in the morning. What morning? By the morning after the busiest recorded day in the life of our Lord. Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. May I say it to you young people very reverently. 
If there ever was a time when our Lord would have been tempted to sleep in. And what a rationalization he would have had. Father, I was busy yesterday in your service. But so high on his priority list was getting alone in fellowship with his Lord that the morning after that day, he retires to spend time in the presence of God. I've been studying the Gospels. I have never found once when Christ was in a hurry. Yet he always had time to do the Father's will. I'm always in a hurry and seldom seem to have time to do the Father's will. You see, the problem, young people, is that we have confused activity with accomplishment. Have you learned the barrenness of busyness? You know, I am quite convinced the reason the average person is so active is that it is an anesthetic to deaden the pain of an empty life. It's a cover. So you keep going. Because if you ever stop, you're liable to think. I asked a pastor friend at a conference some time ago, I said, friend, how much time do you spend thinking? Thinking. He said, I don't have time to think. If I stop to think, I get behind. (laughs) This is our problem. We are infected with the idea, young people, that Jesus Christ is impressed by what we do rather than by what we are. What you do, my friend, will never impress an infinite God. If it is done to the glory of God, it will be done by his power that the glory might be his, not yours. But he is impressed by what you are. Because this will determine what you do. You remember... We read that Christ chose his disciples first, that they might be with him, then that they might be sent forth. I'm coming to appreciate that the greatest leveler is time. It's the one thing we all have in common. We are not all created equal. There are differing gifts. No two of us has the same gifts, precisely the same measure. Some men have 12 cylinders on which to operate, and another man has one. Do you know what I find at the seminary? The man with 12 cylinders is invariably comparing himself with a man who has one. He's operating on four, so he's four times as sharp as the other individual. But he's far below what God called him to be. The only thing God calls upon you to do, my friend, is not to be a brilliant genius if that's not your gift. Not to be Billy Graham if that's not your gift. It's to be what you are and to be that with faithfulness. And this will be determined, my friend, by how you use your time. See, President Kennedy has no more time than you do. 
The man of God who's getting the job done has no more time than you do. May I say it reverently also, Jesus Christ on earth had no more time than you did. In fact, he only had three and a half years of public ministry completely sufficient to get God's will done. So that at the end of three and a half years of ministry, he could say, I have finished the work. There's one other thing I want to share with you briefly. I wish we had a couple hours for this one alone. So I study the Gospels. The Lord is impressing me afresh by the satisfaction of Christ in contrast to the selfishness of my own heart. You see, if Christ, it could be said, young people, I do always those things that are pleasing to thee. On three occasions, heaven was open and the voice from God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Here is the one in whom I find all of my delight. And this is the secret. Jesus Christ found all of his delight in doing the father's will. And the father found all of his delight in the son who did his will. Does he find delight in you? I think the reason why our Lord was completely satisfied in doing the father's will was that he was primarily concerned about his responsibility not his reputation. You see, the self-centered individual is always concerned about his reputation. What, what will they think? What are they saying? What difference does it make? You expect an unregenerate mind to appraise your life with biblical perspective? You expect a carnal pygmy to evaluate your life as significant when his is trivial? Will you turn with me for just a moment to the Gospel by Mark, chapter 2. You know, in verses 13 to 17, we have what I believe is the most beautiful portrait in all of the Word of God. He found Levi and he called him and he followed him. And out of appreciation for his newfound faith, Levi throws a feast. Now, this is very interesting. Who's he going to invite? Well, uh, Let's invite the Pharisees. Pharisees? Mac, they wouldn't walk down the same side of the street with a Levi, with a, uh, with a publican. The only people he could invite were his old cronies, the publicans and sinners. So you have a meeting, sort of an informal gathering of the Bureau of Internal Revenue. Not exactly a high-class company. And I say this is the most beautiful scene in all of the scriptures. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, sitting and eating in the midst of publicans and sinners. And if that's not attractive to you, my friend, it's a proof of how far removed you are from Christ. The only thing that blurs this whole picture is the Pharisee. See him over on the sidelines. Look what they say. 
Verse 16. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? You see, their superficial conclusion was, He is with sinners, therefore he is a sinner. He says, No, sir. I'm a physician. And physicians go where sick people are. Not because they enjoy the company of the sick, but because that's their mission. You know, the greatest weakness in the church today, young people, is a failure to penetrate the lost world with the gospel. Because most of us are more concerned about our reputation than our responsibility. What will the people think? I remember when I first went to Dallas, they have home Bible classes in Dallas. I'd never been introduced to this before. Came out of a rather sheltered background. I mean, after I became a Christian. And I hadn't seen too much of this type of ministry. The lady who was teaching this class asked me if I would take it during her absence. I said, I'd be delighted to. Got the, ad- the address, went out to the house, knocked on the door. And the lady opened the door and the place was filled with smoke. Oh, I'm awfully sorry. At the wrong address. She said, no, aren't you Brother Hendricks? Right. <laughs> We're waiting for you. Come on in for the Bible study. Here. And I'll never forget that experience. Where my liberal arts education began. I went in, the place was filled with smoke. There was a female dreadnought sitting over on the divan. <laughs> who took a drag on a lucky, blew the smoke, no less, over the pages of a Schofield Bible. (laughs) And said, what do you think Paul means by this? (laughs) And I said, you can't come to know the Lord here. And I was dead wrong. You see, I thought that lady's problem was her smoke, but it isn't. It's her soul. And most of us can't get through the smoke to get to her soul. Because what will people think? We got two young men in our junior class. I wish we had a thousand more like them from University of Southern California who were saved three years ago in a frat house with a cocktail glass in this hand and a New Testament in this hand. Because one of our graduates was more concerned about his responsibility than his reputation and went into a frat house in the midst of drinking and presented the wonderful claims of Jesus Christ. I live next door to a very lovely couple. They moved in after we did. He's an insurance man. When he found out that he was living next door to a preacher, I thought he'd have a coronary. I mean, let's face it, what could be worse? And the old boy avoided me like the plague. I mean, I come out and he... (laughs) And finally, one day he was coming around the corner of the house, wasn't watching where he was going, and he ran smack into me. And when he hit me, he knew he hit something. And I said, hi, Jim, I'm Howie Hendricks. Oh, great, nice to meet you. I said, uh, say, I noticed you trimming the bushes, buddy. I said, somebody gave me a electric trimmer. Let me go get it. 
We'll trim it in half the time. Oh, I know. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> Let me go get it. So I went and got it. Boy, 20 minutes we had the bushes trimmed. Then the day came. I invited him to come over to my house for a steak fry. He told me all of this later. He said, good night, Hazel. Wife, what in the world are we going to do? What do you talk to a guy like this about? And a guy tried to make up every excuse, excuse in the world to get out of it. Finally, he found himself hung. I'll never forget the night he came over. It was as if he were sitting on a keg of eggs. <laughs> All night, he just sat there, you know. Found out he was interested in golf, interested in fishing, so I just asked him questions, talked to him. Never during the course of the night did we ever broach spiritual things. Finally, his wife got up and she said, uh, Come on, honey, let's go home. We can't keep these people up all night. And he just sat there. And realizing the embarrassment, I just reached out my hand. I said, Boy, Jim, this has been a terrific evening. I don't remember when I've enjoyed anything so much. Still see him getting up. Yeah. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> well, he told me later, he was waiting for the pitch. Where do you sign? And I completely disarmed him. In the process of time, they wanted to have a child. But they finally got the word... They would never have children of their own. So they decided to adopt a child. They get the papers, start filling them out. Everything's great. They come down to referees, one of whom must be a minister. Oh, my shattered nerves. He said, I don't know, a preacher? Who in the world are we going to put on this? And he said, why don't you ask Allie next door? Oh, good night. I never want to ask him. For three months, the papers were on the desk. So finally got enough courage. One day, I remember he kind of backed up to me. You wouldn't like to sign these papers, would you? Recognizing what they are, I said, Jim, I'd love to sign them. I don't know of a couple in Dallas I'd rather see have a child than you. Next day, I called up the agency. I had been working through them. I said, look, friend, you know that I know what you're looking for. And I found the individual. I know a couple that deserves to have a child. You know, in three weeks, they called him up and they had a baby. I mean, that's pretty fast under any calculation. <laughs> Texas, we do things in a great way. <laughs> you know, when he called him up to tell him he had a baby, the guy was so excited he hung up and forgot to ask him where to pick up the baby. <laughs> I can still remember when he brought the little kid home. I have four of my own. It's not hard for me to work up a lather of a kid. Boy, he brought him up. He said, look, look at that, Howie. Look, he's got fingers. Man, look. He said, he moved. He was so excited he was fairly tingling. This started to build a friendship. One day he was in my living room. My wife was in the kitchen doing the dishes with his wife. He said to me, you know how? He said, I got a promotion. I said, I heard about that, Jim. Congratulations. He said, yeah. He said, you know, it's an amazing thing. How? He said, the higher I go, the less happy I become. Friend, if you don't recognize this is an opportunity, move in. You better sell shoes. <laughs> and I'm convinced that the average person in personal work is batting down the hinges on the doors instead of waiting for the Lord to open it. And when he opens it, friend, you won't miss it if you're halfway sensitive to his leadership.
I had the privilege of leading Jim to a saving knowledge of Christ right in my living room. But suppose Jim came out my front door smoking a cigarette. Ooh, I don't like that. It's a Christian home. You don't smoke here. Boy, he comes out, you know, one of the seminary students going by. Ooh, look! That's just what I thought about, Hendricks. It's how liberalism gets started in the seminary. And I willed under that, and so do you. Because I'm more concerned even about what the warped Christian community is thinking than about my responsibility to get the gospel out to a lost world. And friend, you can't reach that world across a chasm. Have you read my friend Joe Bailey's book, The Gospel Blimp? And you ought to put this on the required reading list, Lauren. This is a must. I require every one of my students to read this. This is a story of this couple that wants to reach their cocktail-drinking, cigarette-smoking neighbors across the street. How are you going to do it? Well, they decide they're going to get a blimp. And they're going to put gospel verses out the back of it. So that this couple looking up will see the gospel and be saved. And the story of this is a lulu. Friend, you'll wince, you'll cry, you'll scream. Be careful where you read it. (laughs) It's so close to home, friend, you'll think he's talking about you. And he may be. You know what the whole thesis of the book is? Personal evangelism without personal involvement. Want to win them. But the last thing in the world we do is go across the street and befriend them. You cannot reach a world across a chasm. Christ was known as the friend of publicans and sinners. That's distinguished company in which to move. And I pray this morning, young people, that the Spirit of God will light some fires in your heart that will never go out. We thank thee, our Father. For the fact that Jesus Christ stooped, took upon him the form of a man, became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross, was willing to forfeit his reputation in order to fulfill his responsibility. We thank thee for the life of Christ recorded in the Gospels. We pray that thou will make us more diligent students of that word. And then to see the spirit of God who loves to reproduce Christ in us. Develop the same characteristics. We thank thee for the Glen, for the staff, for the ministry of outreach around the world. We pray our father that this day shall be a day of triumph, of growth, of salvation, of accomplishment. And use us each one in our respective places to the greater glory of our God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.